As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Simply Financial Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Calandra. I've asked uh, JP Morgan uh, to help me, given that we're in the beginning of the second quarter and so much going on with the economy. If I could have someone on to talk about uh, where JP Morgan believes we are economically. And uh, we have a treat today. We have Executive Director David Lebovitz joining me. He is global market strategist on the JP Morgan Asset Management's Global Market Insights Strategy Team. That's a mouthful. He's been with JP Morgan since 2010. So, David, thank you for uh, taking some time with me today. Of course, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the uh, looking forward to the conversation. Great. So, uh, I want to start with the inflation story because it seems very clear that this is the prominent story, not just for economists and financial people like me, but it's captured the imagination, I think, of everyday Americans. It's a very real economic event that people see throughout their daily lives. So can you share with us what uh, you are thinking about inflation? Of course. Um, you know, it's interesting because it, it is something that is front and center uh, almost every single day. I was uh, picking up some some food yesterday at the grocery store um, and, you know, once again, surprised by, by the bill at the checkout. It feels like it gets higher uh, every single week. In terms of the way we're, we're thinking about inflation, um, inflation is, is running hot. You know, the numbers we got for March, the headline reading up more than 8% <clears throat> on a year-over-year basis was the most robust inflation reading that we've seen since the early 1980s. Um, there are a lot of questions around where things go from here. And the way we're thinking about inflation is, you know, first of all, it's important to differentiate between headline inflation, which is the full basket of goods, and core inflation, which excludes food and energy. Um, a lot of the inflation that we saw in the month of March, uh, a lot of the inflation that we've seen as of late has been driven by higher food and energy prices. And we think that going forward, headline inflation is, is probably going to stay elevated. I think it will come off the boil uh, over the course of the next couple of months. But given where oil prices are, given where natural gas prices are, given where gasoline prices are, it doesn't feel like headline inflation is going to roll over as quickly uh, as a lot of people had originally thought. On the other hand, we do believe that core inflation may begin to cool off here uh, a little bit more rapidly than people had penciled in. And, and that's really driven by a view where 
if we take a step back and think about why we've seen so much inflation uh, over the course of the past, call it 12 to 18 months, it effectively has to do with the government's response to the pandemic, right? The government lined the pockets of lower income individuals with a whole bunch of cash. They went out and spent that cash. They bought stuff. And as a result, we saw inflation begin to rear its ugly head. Now, this very much cuts both ways. And if people are being forced to spend more filling up their car, heating their home, stocking the fridge, that means they have less money to spend elsewhere. Arguably, demand for those other goods and services could begin to cool off. And so while the headline number is going to stay high, we do think that the core number uh, will begin to decelerate here pretty, pretty significantly. Uh, over the course of the next couple of months. And effectively where that leaves us is with a view that inflation, core inflation, is somewhere in the 4% range by the end of 2022, uh, and then hopefully closer to 2% by the end of 2023. But in order to gauge that trajectory of inflation, we're really watching three things in particular. Uh, the first is what goes on with housing. Uh, home prices are up a lot over the past 12 months. Home prices, home price appreciation uh, only shows up in the official government inflation statistics with a lag. And so the big move that we've seen is, again, going to put a floor underneath inflation when we think about 2022. The second thing we're watching is what goes on with the supply chain. I mean, the reality is that COVID is, is ripping through China. Once again, these supply chains are not going to heal as quickly as everybody had originally thought. And we do believe that that's going to keep inflation a bit sticky, uh, likely through the end of this year. The last thing we're watching is what's going on in the labor market. Um, there is a tremendous amount of demand for labor. Unfortunately, there is a limited supply. And the reality is that all three of these things are going to lead inflation to come down more slowly uh, than perhaps investors and the Federal Reserve would, would necessarily have liked to, to see. Um, but we do believe that we're probably seeing peak inflation in the current environment and that the path of least resistance will be lower uh, throughout the rest of 2022 and, and into the beginning of next year. So that's pretty good news if, uh, if it doesn't last as intensely. I mean, it's gonna last for a while, but won't be as intense as it is now if the forecast you're thinking on this turns out to be correct. That is, that is welcome news. What about the Federal Reserve? Um, you referenced them uh, a little bit ago but they're definitely signaling their policy change for this year and maybe beyond. How does the Fed policy figure into your thoughts? So when, when we think about the Fed, you know, clearly, clearly they are uncomfortable uh, with the level of inflation today. They are in the process of trying to do something about it. They started hiking rates uh, back in March. They meet again in May. We think they'll hike rates again then. They meet again in June. We think that a hike is coming at the June meeting. Um, as well. And so we do see the Fed, you know, continuing to normalize monetary policy here uh, over the course of the next couple of months. Now, I do think that if inflation is trending the way that we believe it will, there's reason to believe that the Fed may not be as aggressive as what markets are currently pricing in. Um, right now, the market is pricing in a hike at every Fed meeting for the remainder of the year, and two of those hikes uh, being 50 basis points as opposed to the 25 basis point hikes uh, that we've become very accustomed to over the course of the prior cycle. And so we do think, again, the Fed is going to continue to tighten policy here. But my thought is that maybe they go a little bit more slowly into year end uh, than what markets are, are currently thinking. 
The other point I will make about the Fed is they are clearly uncomfortable with the size of their balance sheet, um, almost $9 trillion in, in assets on the books. Uh, I do believe that when they get together in May, <clears throat> they will announce what, what economists refer to as quantitative tightening, which is the process by which they allow the balance sheet uh, to begin to decline. And what they basically said is over the first three months, once it is announced, they will ramp up to a runoff rate of $95 billion a month. Uh, $35 billion of that will be mortgage-backed securities. $60 billion of that will be plain old vanilla treasury bonds. And so you know, the Fed is, is moving to the exit. But I think when it comes to the Fed, if, if there was one word that I was going to use to sum up Fed policy this year, it's optionality, right? The Fed wants the option to skip a meeting. Right? The Fed doesn't want to be playing catch up. And so I do believe that when they got together back in March and they saw that the market was pricing in a hike at every meeting for the remainder of the year, the decision to reflect that same trajectory in their own forecasts really was just giving them the option. Right, It's much easier if you're the Fed chair to say you're going to hike rates six times and then only deliver five as yeah. opposed to saying we're only going to hike five times and then you need to figure out how you're going to deliver six, seven, so on or so forth. And so, again, I think that the market is, is not only seeing peak inflation, we're also seeing peak hawkishness uh, around what the Fed is going to do here. But again, if the inflation story plays out the, the way that we believe, we do think that there's room for the Fed to have a little bit more flexibility when it comes to policy uh, as we get closer to the end of 2022. OK, that's that makes a lot of sense. That's a great point. We don't need to delve into it because we could probably talk about that this for a long time. But do you think criticism about the Federal Reserve uh, being too behind the curve at this point is fair? Because the inflation story has been percolating for a while. And I know it intensified with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what's happened this year. But there were signs of this coming along, you know, let's say the spring of last year. Do they deserve a decent amount of criticism at this point as to how they've behaved and operated their policy over the last, say, six, nine, 12 months? You know, I think I think everybody gives the Fed a pretty, pretty tough time. I mean, clear, clearly they're behind the ball. They probably should have started hiking rates, you know, end of last year, beginning of this year. They probably didn't need uh, to keep buying bonds, you know, through the month of March. But the reality is credibility matters. Right. And so part of the reason why the Fed is, quote unquote, behind the curve is because they said two things. They said, we're going to tolerate inflation above our target and we're not going to stop buying bonds until March. Right. They were backed into a corner on the quantitative easing front. It would have caused unnecessary market stress for them to try to end things there uh, sooner than what they had originally laid out. And again, you know, the Fed was was tolerating this above target inflation. The problem was it got too high for them to continue to tolerate. And so, you know, I think people blame the Fed a lot. Clearly, they are somewhat responsible for what's gone on. But at the end of the day, you know, I think that there are a number of other forces at play, uh, one of those being fiscal policy, which are as if not more responsible for the inflation we're seeing uh, in the current environment. No, that's very well said. And I hadn't thought about it through that lens. And you mentioned the supply chain and what's happening in China. You know, that that I think was not terribly predictable. And I think it's contributed to some of this price action um, so far this year. Let's switch gears a little bit, David, and talk about corporate profits. U.S. corporations have done remarkably well 
during and through the pandemic. I think, in my view, it's a great complement to the dynamic power of the U.S. economy. But can corporate profits continue to grow this year? What, what, do, you, what do you think about that? So I, I do think profits can continue to grow this year. And, and one of the things that we've been talking to clients about uh, quite a bit, particularly over the past couple of weeks, is that if you look at what has driven volatility so far in equity markets this year, it's been changes in valuation. It's been changes in the forward PE ratio. The earnings story, frankly, remains intact. And if you look at consensus estimates for what analysts believe earnings will be, over the next 12 months, that number has risen fairly steadily over the course of 2022 thus far. Um, analyst forecasts are for profits to grow by about 10% uh, in the calendar year 2022 as a whole. That feels reasonable uh, given what we're seeing from our own models and, and given the historic relationships between economic growth and, and earnings, but there is a risk here. And we've touched on what the risk is. The risk is around profit margins, right? We, we were talking earlier about higher wages, higher commodity costs, higher input costs. Margins, meanwhile, are sitting right near their all-time highs. And so there is a risk to earnings, and that really stems from margins. And so the question then becomes, what can companies do to defend their margins? And the reality is that there, there are kind of two levers that they can pull, and the lever that they pull depends on which kind of cost they're trying to manage. So let's start with wages. Um, very difficult to pass higher wages along to the consumer in the form of higher prices. Um, what you need to do if, if wages are an issue, if wage growth is an issue, is focus on things like automation and efficiency, so on and so forth, as a way of dealing with, with that labor dynamic. On the other hand, if you're talking about you know, higher raw material costs, higher uh, input costs, excluding wages, um, it's much easier to pass those higher costs along to the end consumer. You know, if it costs you more to, to make a tube of toothpaste, oftentimes consumers will pay that higher price because it's not going to be all that much, right? The wage thing, again, uh, is much more difficult to, to pass along. And so we do think that over the course of the year, profit margins will come down. However, we believe that, that they will cool off. We, we do not necessarily think that they will collapse. And if margins settle at about 12.5%, which is our forecast for the year, um, that should allow that 10% earnings growth I mentioned earlier uh, to be realized here in, in 2022. Excellent. And that leads me to my next question, which is global growth. What are your expectations for global growth? As, and, and in particular, um, if you could talk a little bit about expectations for the US, that'd be great. Absolutely. So the, the global growth story is kind of interesting because at the headline level, our forecast for the global economy this year has actually remained relatively stable uh, over the past couple of weeks. What we've seen more of is a redistribution of where that growth is going to come from uh, when we look beneath the surface. And so uh, maybe starting with the United States, things here should be fine. Um, when, when everything started to fall apart in Eastern Europe, we actually went, we're, we're very lucky to be able to see the Chase data on a purely anonymized basis. Uh, but using that data, we were basically able to model out how much of a cash cushion the consumer had to deal with these higher energy prices. And what we found was that the consumer could basically withstand oil prices at $120 a barrel for three months before they needed to dip in to what we would consider to be core savings. Again, the financial health of the consumer is allowing for this resiliency in the face of a commodity price shock. And we do think that when all is said and done, 
the U.S. economy will grow somewhere between two and a half and three percent for calendar year 2022 as a whole. Now, the same cannot be said for Europe. Um, Europe was dealing with elevated energy prices going into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They're now dealing with energy prices that are even higher. Uh, and the reality is that the risk of recession in Europe uh, has risen. We think that it's about 50%. There's about a 50% chance that at some point during the next 12 months, uh, the Eurozone does experience an economic contraction. I'm not necessarily sure it's going to come anytime terribly soon. To us, it's more of a phenomenon that we'll see as we get closer to the end of the year. Uh, but again, you know, a stable outlook in the United States, uh, a big downgrade to our view on, on what lies ahead for Europe. But importantly, one man's feast is another man's famine. Uh, and while we've downgraded our view again on Europe, we've upgraded our view on emerging markets, particularly places like Latin America, where these higher commodity prices have really been a breath of fresh air. And you, know, you think about that dynamic, you think about the fact that the Chinese economy is struggling, but Chinese policymakers have said they're going to respond by using monetary and fiscal policy going forward. We do think that those are two pretty powerful tailwinds for the EM complex as a whole. And so again, the way that we arrive at that relatively stable global view is by maintaining our view on what's going to happen in the United States, downgrading our view on what's going to happen in Europe, but upgrading our view on what's going to happen in the emerging parts of the, uh, the global economy. Gotcha. Okay. I see where you're coming from. You mentioned the U.S. consumer in terms of uh, corporate profits. So it seems to me that the mood of the American public has soured here over the last stretch. Uh, been through a lot with the pandemic, the shutdowns, the whole kit and caboodle related to that. But it seems like sentiment is souring. As an example, you look at the right track, wrong track polling. It has, I think, 68% of Americans think the country's on the wrong track. That means it's not just one party. That's a pretty large number. And then just some of the confidence indexing that you see seems to be on the decline because if the consumer continues to operate they've been, then yeah, I mean, we're, US is probably fine, but there's a disconnect. I know this is a long question, David. It seems like there's a disconnect because it seems like people are in a sour mood maybe not happy with politics, worried about war, the pandemic hangover, but yet they're going out and spending money pretty strongly, which means that they're optimistic. But if you talk to them, they seem pretty sour. How do you square that? And how does that fit into the, the outlook for growth this year? So I think, you know, at the end of the day, what really drives sentiment are you know, the, the things that we see. And, and so to your point, right, it's about the headlines. Like the headlines have been very negative. There's a war in Eastern Europe. Inflation is high. You know, politicians, well, they can never agree, but they particularly disagree uh, in, the, uh, in the current environment. I think it's really a, a confluence of factors that's been weighing on <clears throat> consumer sentiment. When we look at the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, you know, its current level is effectively consistent with what is usually seen during recession. And as I just mentioned, we don't really view recession risk in the United States uh, as being terribly elevated over the course of the next 12 months. And so I think that, you know, it, it's always darkest before the dawn. And what the reality here is that there are just so many things that have been weighing on the consumer. But, you know, let's think about where things are headed rather than where they've been. Uh, it looks like inflation is going to begin coming off the boil. Uh, hopefully the situation in Eastern Europe is resolved sooner rather than later. You know, the, the Fed has embarked on, on interest rate hikes and 
<clears throat> that's going to pinch, but you know, we, we kind of, it's, it's more of a known quantity uh, in the current environment. And then finally on, on oil prices, I mean, oil prices are, are coming back down to earth. I'm not sure we're headed back to the 50 to 60% range that we were in, you know, prior to the pandemic. But I can tell you as somebody who went and filled their car up with gas yesterday, uh, you know, 20 cents a gallon cheaper than it was a few weeks before. And so it does feel like things are, are beginning to, to improve here. It does feel like the clouds are beginning to break. And I do anticipate that that will be reflected in some of the consumer sentiment figures uh, over the course of the coming months. I like it. I like it. So you mentioned recession. It seems like talk of recession in the U.S. has perked up. You know, we have the inverted yield curve. And with the Federal Reserve seeming to be on a policy where we're going to see interest rates rise perhaps significantly, people have begun talking about recession. And just to revisit what you said a few moments ago, uh, the outlook is that over the next 12 months, the U.S. economy should not dip into a recession in your view. Is that right? Yes, it is. Um, and and what, I would, what I would add is that, you know, to us, the biggest risk today was the same as the biggest risk at the beginning of the year, and that's a Fed policy error, right? The, the risk here is that the Fed overdoes it and ends up knocking the economy into recession at some point in, in 2023. In order to avoid that, the private sector is going to need to heal, right? The supply chains are going to have to get better. Labor supply is going to have to come back. The Fed can't do this on their own, right? Hiking rates doesn't fix the supply chain. And so when we think about that recession risk, you know, part of it is being driven by the Fed, but part of it is also being driven by the ability of the private sector to get a little bit better. You know, and again, back to what we were just discussing around consumer sentiment, if people start to feel a little bit better, you know, that could go a long way for helping the Fed uh, achieve their, their objectives as well. Gotcha. And so you've been in the business for quite a while. You've seen different market cycles, as well as being a student of the longer term history of the market. Can you give some maybe uh, key bullet point items, you know, sort of advice for long term investors? It feels for a lot of people that we're in uncharted territory. And to a certain extent, that's true. Post pandemic is different. We haven't seen war in Europe in over 50 years. We haven't seen uh, well, actually, war in Europe is probably longer than that, right? And we haven't seen the type of inflation that we've seen since the early 1980s. So in some ways, it feels like we're in uncharted territory. And I think there's merit in that. But at the same time, the market's been through stuff like this before. So what, what advice would you give to, to long-term investors? Not specific, like buy X or sell Y, but just generally, what advice would you give? So the, the first thing that I would say is volatility is normal. You know, if you look back to 1980, on average, the S&P 500 falls, has fallen by 14% during the course of the year, but it has gone on to finish in positive territory 75% of the time. The reality is that the environment we were in last year, when the S&P 500 fell from peak to trough by only 5%, yet the market finished the year up nearly 30% when all was said and done, that is not normal. That is not a normal environment. What we're seeing so far this year, peak to trough decline of 13%, market still in the red year to date, is actually far more normal than what's been observed you know, in, in 2020 or what was observed in 2021. So the first thing to recognize is that volatility is normal, uh, but equity markets are resilient. The second piece of advice I would give is that when volatility picks up, stick to your plan. 
right? Don't get emotional. The emotional investor loves to buy high and sell low, right? They're very good at doing precisely the wrong thing at exactly the right time. Uh, periods of volatility create opportunity. And it's important to recognize that the best and the worst days in the market tend to be clustered together. Uh, in fact, over the past 20 years, seven out of the 10 best days occurred within two weeks of the 10 worst days, right? So when it gets really uncomfortable, you don't want to jump ship because if you miss those good days, that can end up impacting your, your long-term return. And the final thing I would say is, is be balanced. You know, my, my job is basically to think about risk. And, and I'm always of the view that, you know, there are risks that I can see and there are risks that I cannot see. Uh, the risks I can see, things like the risk from higher rates. Well, I can tell you what to do in your portfolio uh, to protect against that outcome. The risks I can't see are things like global pandemics or, or wars, right? And that's why we diversify. We hedge against risks we can see. We diversify against risks that we cannot. And so it's a recognition that volatility is normal, but markets are resilient. It's a recognition that emotions are great for relationships, but not for investing. And it's a recognition that over time, taking a diversified approach tends to smooth out the ride. And the reality is that if we can keep investors comfortable, then we can keep them invested. And if we can keep them invested, we can improve the chances that they successfully accomplish their long-term financial goals. Wonderful advice, valuable advice. David, thank you so much. I appreciate uh, the time you spent with me here this morning. I think my listeners will appreciate uh, your perspective quite a bit. So uh, thank you. And thanks to your partner, Bill, for setting this up for us. Of course. Thanks for having me. The views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of Sage Point Financial Incorporated and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. No strategy can assure a profit nor protect against loss. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. Please note the information being provided is strictly as a courtesy. When you link to any of the websites provided here, you are leaving this website. We make no representation as to the completeness or accuracy of the information provided at these websites, nor is the company liable for any direct or indirect technical or system issues or any consequences arising out of your access to your use of third-party technologies websites, information, and programs made available through this website. When you access one of these websites, you are leaving our website and assume total responsibility and risk for your use of the websites you are linking to. Securities and advisory services are offered through SagePoint Financial Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC, insurance services offered through Elliott Wealth Management, LLC, not affiliated with SagePoint Financial. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.